We're creating role models in spaces where the civil service is often seen as really corrupt pool that talented young people don't even see as a feasible career option. We want to show them that, look, there are good people in there. Here's an opportunity you can learn from these people. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Accountability Lab is an innovative organisation which takes a really interesting approach to building accountability and integrity in several countries worldwide. In this episode, Sherry Lee Erasmus, the lab's global director of learning, talks to Dan Huff about what makes Accountability Lab's approach distinctive. There are some great lessons here on how to engage groups on accountability through different mediums like film, music and storytelling. The lab's structure as a translocal network of organisations also holds lessons which will interest researchers and practitioners working in this space. Here are Sherry and Dan to tell us more. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Kickback Podcast. My name is Dan Huff from the University of Sussex. I'm a professor of politics there and a member of the Centre for the Study of Corruption. I'm really pleased to be speaking to someone who's got a very interesting anti-corruption profile. Um, Sherry Lee Erasmus, the Global Director of Learning at Accountability Lab is with me. And and we're going to talk about some of the the stuff that Accountability Lab has done. Much of it really interesting and to find a little bit, uh, find out a little bit more about their anti-corruption thinking. So, um, So Sherry, how are you? Are you good? Good. Thanks so much for having me on today, Dan. Well, thanks very much for coming on board. We we do appreciate it. Just going to start off with a with a long half volley for those who understand their cricketing terminology. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up working for Accountability Lab and and, and your way into anti corruption? So I think I'd love to start with my way into anti corruption. So I was born in the eighties in apartheid South Africa, and I think being a young person who had enough of a political understanding about what was going on, going through that transition from, you know, legal segregation to a country entering democracy, really instilled in me this acute sense of justice and equity. I just, it's not that I come from a highly political family per se, but I was in a way the outlier who was just always so aware of everyone should be treated equally. And in a way that just never went away. And so I see accountability very much as an equity issue, right? Because it's a simple equation as some people are stealing and therefore some people don't have services. And that's a very simple way of putting it. But but it really is for me like an issue of just everyone getting their equal share, especially when you think of resources and services we should be getting from a government, for example. And, and so in that sense, I think apartheid actually left a, like a, a positive piece in me because that just has never gone away. And I think I've always been politically curious. I have this very vivid memory of my parents coming back from my fifth grade parent-student, parent-teacher conference type thing. And then saying, your teacher said a very interesting thing. He said that like, you probably know more about politics than he does. So this is in the fifth grade. In and fifth I was grade, always, that's impressive. Yeah, I was just always super interested in political news, understanding how systems work, understanding the nuts and bolts. And I've always just been a fervent participant, wanting to be engaged in things. And so 
a place like the accountability lab that is really aimed at getting people involved, making people curious about governance conversations who are generally left out of these conversations for a variety of reasons. It just um, has become my home for the last five years because it, it brings together all of these things that I'm really interested in. And I get to work on corruption and Corruption is deeply embedded in the lexicon, I think, of all South Africans for, again, very many reasons. What, you have corruption in South Africa? No. Never. <laughs> Never. Not a thing you see there at yeah. all. So, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a deep personal passion that I get to mix with my professional skills. So how did you find your way to Accountability Lab then? What, what, how, how did that pass manage to, manage to work itself out? Right. So I, I started off studying international relations and um, I took a detour away from politics and international relations for a while, working in more the intersection of international relations and education, starting off in international higher education, because I also feel that there is this sort of like inherent complementary nature of things like education and participation and and experiential learning, right? How you actually support the leaders of tomorrow, how you support people to be really better equipped to enter into the civil society space. And so that was a bit of a detour I took. I landed in, in Washington, D.C. And, and made this my home about a decade ago. And um, five years ago, decided to, to pivot back into the more tangible, like governance, international affairs development space and and that's when I joined accountability lab now I think many of our listeners will will, will be well aware of, of accountability lab it has it has you know, a number of really interesting USPs in in the in the global anti-corruption world but for those who, who don't know the organization that well can you tell us a little bit more about it where it began and, and how it's got to where it is now so Accountability Lab is going to be 11 years old very soon. So in international development, not a very old organization. We're pretty much a toddler um, and, and, and still growing in very many ways. It was founded by my colleague, Blake Lenkos, and originally started in Nepal and Liberia in, in 2012. And essentially, the idea came about with, you know, talking to young people and asking them about their needs. And, and when you think about what young people in the developing world might ask for, you know, you imagine that it would be straightforward answers like we need more employment, we need access to education, we need proper health care. But again and again, you hear things about we need our leaders to be accountable. And so at Accountability Lab, we see working on issues of accountability and leaders and institutions being accountable to constituents as what really underpins the other the other development factors of a country if we can get again like power holders to take that accountability and their responsibility seriously and if, if they can become responsive to the needs of communities then you're going to see improved services in those other areas, right? And so it started initially with a couple of programs primarily centered on equipping young people with social accountability ideas, what we call accountpreneurs, um, with, you know, training and networks and the skills to essentially move social accountability forward within their community and to scale ideas that they have. And, and quickly after followed Integrity Icon, which is probably our most um, 
well-known program, um, and I can talk about that a little bit. But really what Accountability Lab is now and has become over the last 10 years is a translocal network of organizations working together with the same strategy. And I think this is an important point to highlight because we're structured very differently from, from many other organizations. Each accountability lab in each country, whether it be AL Nigeria or AL Mali, is a separate legal entity with its own governance structure, its own board, its own country director, and is fully staffed by CSO practitioners from that country. And this means that we have 12 countries really working together, learning from each other as a network, transplanting what works in one place and sort of incubating a new program transplanting it and localizing it in a different context. And we're able to do this learning and localization because our staff are from these communities, right? And so it's it's very different from conceptualizing an idea in BC and bringing it to Bamako and, and figuring out whether it will work. And that's such a core value of Accountability Lab that, that really resonates with me, and I think that there's really in our organization deep buy-in for this model of sort of like dispersed power, each lab having its autonomy, me, but all of us working together towards the same strategy. So that's very much where, where we are today. We've grown immensely in terms of countries in the last 10 years. So we currently work in South Asia, in Nepal and Pakistan. In Latin America, we work in we work in Mexico and we do some work in partnership in Belize. Then we also work in, in, in several countries across West Africa um, and Southern Africa. Now, I think many, many people who, came, who come across Accountability Lab will probably have come across Integrity Icon first. That, that's one of the things that I, I, I remember uh, um, finding out about and thinking this, this, is, this, is, you know, this is very left field and this is very interesting. And this has got potential to, to, you know, to, to really catch eyes. And I, I think it has. So how did the idea for Integrity Icon come about? And um, well, how many countries now actually have Integrity Icon competitions? Is it all 12? Yeah, it's all of them. And also we've done it in partnership with other organizations in other countries like Morocco and the Ukraine um, pre-war and also in Sri Lanka. So it's, it's you know, it goes beyond just what the lab is implementing. The idea came about, sadly, I wasn't around at the lab yet, but it came about when Blair and my colleague Narayan, who's our country director in in Nepal, were literally watching the Nepal version of Idol on on TV and like people singing and got the idea for what would it look like if we had like a reality TV show that was about honest civil servants. And that's pretty much how it started and, and what it still is in some ways today. However, the campaign itself, although it's like grown to all of these countries and, you know, we are still engaging all of, you know, at a national level and engaging communities in, in having them nominate, nominate um, icons that we can then, you know, honor through a mini documentary, which gets streamed out. People go on the radio. It's all over social media. People get to vote. There's a lot of sort of like the background pieces to it that aren't always seen to people. So more and more over the years, we've been complementing the Integrity Icon campaign with ancillary programming. Some of that would be hosting Integrity Summits, where we actually bring icons and other civil servants and members of the media and academia together to be in spaces where they can reimagine what integrity might look like in their country. 
And those summits are really, you know, powerful ways for people to come up with tangible plans and, and in a way innovate and, and think through, you know, even like in the next year, in the next five years, what are the things they can feasibly work on to push for good governance reforms in a specific agency, for example? We've also built more storytelling components into Integrity Icon. So in many of our countries, the icons, the mini documentaries that people see online, those are actually filmed by film fellows. So these are young people with an interest in using filmmaking as an advocacy tool who go through a, a program with us for a couple of months. They shadow and learn from a professional filmmaker everything to how you create the storyboard through to how you do post-production on these films. And they can then go, go forward and like create their own advocacy films. And this is such an important piece of giving people the, the space to tell their own story around accountability issues in their own words. And so there's now a network of young people who are equipped for visual storytelling around this. We also do things like integrity fellowships where young people can shadow an icon or other civil servants for a while, because a big outcome we envision for integrity icon is that we're also, we're creating role models in spaces where the civil service is often seen as, you know, just this really corrupt pool that talented young people don't even see as a feasible career option. We want to show them that, look, there are good people in there. Here's an opportunity you can learn from these people and you should consider the civil service as an option because we need good and talented people to be infused into the civil service to ultimately change that system, right? So yeah, over the years, this ancillary work that we're doing has really changed and it connects to our vision of really creating insider, outsider networks at the lab that collectively push for reforms. And if I've got this right, you know, many of the places where Integrity Icon has been most successful have been in the Global South, but there have been initiatives in the Global North to do this as well. Do I remember Philadelphia having a, an Integrity Icon competition? Yes, so we do run Integrity Icon in partnership with the citizen in Philadelphia, just at the city level. This year, we'll actually be opening nominations for the third time. So we are testing what it might look like in the in the Global North. I do think there's a need for this everywhere. Um, I, I do think, you know, it's so highly contextualized in, in what the civil service is, what terminology you use and, and how you talk about integrity. So it's still an area where we are also finding our feet and, and finding ways to, to sort of figure out how you localize it. But I'm very excited about bringing this to the global north as well. I think, as you say, a degree of creativity and understanding of a local context are surely opportunities in the global north as well. And, and yeah, I, I look forward to seeing where that that, that goes. What, one thing that does occur to me, though, and I show these th these clips to my students and they, they find them fascinating and, and, and I totally understand why they do. But how do you know it's genuinely making a difference? Sorry if that's a rather downbeat question to ask, but um, I mean, there is a, a case you could make. So people watch this, they get entertained by it and they carry on in their normal lives. But how, how do you go beyond that? So we have, um, over the past few years, done a lot to get a sense of the impact of Integrity Icon, because this is a very fair question, like, great reality TV show, what does this mean at the end of the day? So a couple of years ago, we did an, a contribution tracing study on Integrity Icon in Liberia to better understand what contribution Integrity Icon makes on 
civil servants' ability to push for reforms in their um, in their agency or in the department where they are working. And one of the big things we've learned through that is that across the board, the icons I've spoken to within that study and beyond that study find that they have a heightened sense of motivation to push for reforms. And it's it's pretty simple, Dan, in that sense, that if you are the outlier in a heavily corrupt system, it can often be quite isolating. People say over and over again that they that they feel so alone. And so being celebrated, knowing that you're your work is being seen, even when you didn't know someone was looking, right? A community member ended up actually nominating you. Often these icons get like several nominations. And th- that's a highly motivating factor. And on top of that, then bring being brought into a network with other icons, even if they're not in your department, there's now people you can talk to, you can brainstorm with. You have like this home base of of other honest civil servants that become your network. And that network we've seen being highly beneficial to people just in terms of, again, their own motivation, their own creativity, because they have people to talk to. The the other part of this is that we've seen integrity icons really being recognized for their work in government departments and then being pulled into positions where they have more power to actually shift systems. And we have a number of examples of this. One of my favorite examples personally is a police captain from KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. He's at a relatively rural police station, small, not a place you would know about um, at all unless you're from that province. Captain Vinny, his name is, and and he was honored in, in 2018. And shortly after, he was pulled into a national ethics committee for example, and it was because the press around him through Integrity Icon, he wouldn't have been known. And similarly, similarly across different countries, we've seen other people being pulled into either national bodies, them also creating mentorship programs for younger civil servants in their, in their own departments. So there's really just, there are so many stories of people making a difference because of this recognition they get through Integrity Icon. And also, I mean, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say that Rome wasn't built in a day, right? If anyone thinks anti-corruption will have, you know, success by the weekend, then they haven't really understood it very well, have they? It takes time to see these longer-term impacts come through. Of course, Integrity Icon is not the only thing that Accountability Lab does. Um, there's a range of other initiatives. I mean, one that caught my eye is Voice to Rep. Uh, you're, you're trying to bring us uh, new singers, right? Yes, absolutely. Just churning out albums. I won't be entering, rest assured. You know. <laughs> yeah, a Voice to Rev is, falls under our Arts for Change programming. I mentioned earlier that we do film fellowships. So there's all of these storytelling initiatives. But we also have Voice to Rev, which is personally like one of my favorite programs at Accountability Lab. And it's, it's all about finding creative ways to bring new people into governance, anti-corruption type conversations. Reason being, in most of the countries we work, people are really fatigued when you talk about corruption. There's also apathy around participation in some spaces just because people don't see meaningful change, right? And and at the same time, we work in countries where the median age is quite, quite low, like young people are the bulk of the population. And we know that we aren't going to reach young people through, you know, a 30 page report or policy paper. 
um, on, on what's not working. There's certainly room for that, but if we want to use, if we want to really reach a younger audience, we need to find new ways to reach them. And so we identify young musicians who have an interest in using social accountability as part of of their portfolio. We essentially train them, we partner with production companies, so we professionally produce the songs that they write, we bring them together to brainstorm, we put them through what is accountability type training so that the messaging is grounded in sort of the real like tenets of um, accountability and integrity. Um, And ultimately we release these albums, not just on places like Spotify, but actually the core is to get this out on community radio. That's where, where we reach people. That's where people can engage with the music. And again, people might ask, what's the outcome of this? And, And I'll tell you two quick stories. We know that in places where corruption is endemic, people also stop trusting messaging from the government, right? So in, in 2020, 2020, when COVID broke out in Liberia, for example, people were not listening to memos coming out from the government in terms of like COVID mitigation, where services are being delivered, how to keep yourself safe. So we were able to round up some of the rappers who were part of this voice to rap program in the past and produced three songs to break those things down for people. And that's how we got traction because sometimes these almost pop culture figures in society can be more trusted messengers than the government in a place where your trust in the government has completely broken down and, and hearing it in the local vernacular, hearing it in, in you know, in terms that make sense to you really matters. And so that campaign, you know, went out nationwide on community radio, social media, everywhere. We gave it on like USBs to the KK drivers, right? Who are going through cities to play on loop in the KK. And that's how you reach people. Similarly in Nigeria in 2019, we ran the first voice to rip there. And that one was all about, participation because it was during the last presidential election. Now we've just had a fresh presidential election in in Nigeria, but at that stage, our aim was really to get young people at least registered to vote because whether you end up voting on the day is, is up in the air, but if you at least registered, you're eligible to go and vote. So we ran a massive voice trip campaign with with 10 artists, made these songs about participation. Um, And this was still pre-COVID, so we could also still host sort of like massive concerts. And there, you know, we didn't obviously charge money for you to come to the concert, but your ticket for the concert was your voter registration card. And so that, in a way, pushed people to get registered so that they can go to the Voice to Rip concert. And and we brought in some other headliners. and, And a very famous rapper said, this gave him the sense that you know previously he was often paid by politicians to to put out their messaging pre-election but that actually like musicians have agency and you get to put out the messaging about participation that's important to you and that's values aligned so yeah there's um again you know it it just is making the messaging travel through creativity to reach new audiences it sounds absolutely great. And, and if ever you need an old crooner to bang out some 1980s pop classics, then, you know, just let me know. I, I can, if you want rap or anything that's vaguely modern, no, so, someone else will be much better than me. But it sounds like a great initiative. And I'd encourage all our listeners to go and go and have a look at Accountability Labs website where you, you tell us plenty more about it. That's great. 
what's next for accountability lab you have a range of, of really interesting programs is it to build on these or do you have um, new initiatives that are, are in the pipeline somewhere it's definitely to build on these i think over the last few years, and, and this is also reflected in, in our new strategy, which, again, I'd encourage listeners to go and find on our website. There's also a very cool rap version of our strategy, which you should definitely check out, too. But we, we, we're in a I new... I university strategy. managers demanding that of us. You know, that, that, that <laughs> my goodness me, a shiver goes up my spine. But sorry, carry on. Um, but yeah, I think in addition to sort of the programming, which are like very visual things people see and connect with because they're bold and creative accountability lab is has also become a convener in many ways um over the last few years and and that's a core part of what we'll continue to do and and this is really convening at at different levels so at the national level for example a number of our network labs would be the key civil society conveners for, for example, OGP national action plans, right? So creating that space for civil society to create input into bigger processes. So there's all of that national level convening, but then also, um, especially at Accountability Lab Global, we find it important to, to use the proximity we have to feed voices up into bigger international multilateral processes such as, again, the, the OGP, the Summit for Democracy, and, and those sorts of spaces, so that actually, you know, what we learn on the ground in places like Zimbabwe, South Africa, Liberia, wherever it may be, is filtered through and go into those, those global processes. So that convening piece remains really important for us. We're also thinking deeply about the intersections of accountability and, and other important issues. So things like inclusion obviously remain really important to us, but also looking at environmental accountability, climate accountability, what that means for the communities we work in. And, and that will be a big part of our 2023 to 2026 strategy as well. I think what's next for us we continue to learn, we continue to build that learning into what we do and, and how how we do it and and integrating what we do into the translocal network in a sense that really amplifies the voices from the ground is, is really important to us. Yeah, my impression was always that it, it wasn't about you, it was about the people you supported. And Accountability Lab was always the vehicle through which they could have a little bit more of an impact, right? And that, that seems to fit very much into your strategy in, in the future. Accountability Lab exists to try and help a few other folks do things that are really important. And, uh, and, and that's why the initiatives have caught, uh, have caught so many eyes all, all around the world. Over and beyond that, one of the questions we, we often ask to our participants on, on Kickback is, is what they would like to see anti-corruption research do next. So over and beyond the, the, the world of, of NGOs and, and sort of bottom-up activism, what, what do you think it would be, should be top of the list of things, well, I, I guess that people like me in, in, in the ivory tower of academia uh, should be thinking about? What would, you, what would you suggest that we do? So I don't have a specific thematic area, but I do think there's an important challenge that all of us need to work on together. And that is how do we translate what we're learning in the ivory tower or in these other spaces down so that it's useful to CSOs on the ground who are trying to really advocate and push forward anti-corruption efforts. I think for those of us in, in DC, in, in academia, 
and so on, we can often be in a bit of an echo chamber. And I think it's really important that the high level conversations be had. But I think there's real utility in us also finding ways to translate what we are learning, the methods we think are gaining traction that can be transplanted at a local level down to people who can who can really use it. And I think that requires more partnerships between um, academia and CSOs who can do that translating work, right? Spaces like the Accountability Lab who put reports out in terms of infographics, for example, in, in that sort of form so that it's accessible to people. And, and so this would be my, my call to action. How can we do more of that together so that there's real utility um, at the local advocacy level for the work we produce? I think that's really interesting, Sherry, because um, I, I, I was in DC in December for the IACC conference, the first one I've ever been to, actually. And this, this says a little bit about academia, I suppose, that I, it was, in my world, a, a CSO-type conference, and, and I, I just couldn't quite ever fit it into my diet. But I went to this one, and I did feel there was basically three groups of people. There was um, there was the CSO community, there was the academic community, and there was the policy-stroke-politics community. And I didn't feel there was nearly enough of the policy-stroke-politics community on show in, in D.C. And the reason I mention it is, of course, it's D.C., you know, right. there's a lot of those folks in D.C. And yet I didn't really get much of an angle on, on the politics policy uh, guys. there. And of course, you know, all three of those groups talking to each other and working together might be a way to make sure that the, that the recommendations that come out are actually of more use than perhaps they have been at times uh, at times in the past. I'm not sure that's a question, Sherry, but if you want to come back on it anyway, it might just be a comment, actually. That's definitely part of it. I think that's an important piece of it. I think we all also in our three worlds, have a different lexicon for very much the same things. And, and so I think often, you know, we're not, we're not even creating the right entry points for conversations because we're not even speaking the same language. And I think it's really important, you know, all, all of these pillars are important to move anti-corruption efforts forward. It's never going to be one person, one organization or one sector that does this. And so they, I think it's really important that we get in the same room, but that we also get into the same dictionary and start understanding each other to be able to, to move things forward and kind of like get out of our jargon a little bit. I hear you. I hear you. that makes a lot of sense to me. Sherry, thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to us. It's been a fascinating conversation, as I said a couple of times already to, to listeners. Uh, do go and have a look at Accountability Lab's uh, uh, website. There's plenty of great material on there if you've not um, encountered them before. And if you're a teacher like I am, then there's, there's great stuff on there that you can use to keep your students entertained. And, of course, to, to make a little bit of an impact uh, in terms of fighting corruption as well. So thanks for coming on board. We, we appreciate it. And uh, best of luck moving forward. Thanks so much, Dan.